Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Mind to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. Today, we have Margaret Bloomstein, author of Trustworthy. Uh, Margaret is talking to us from Boston. Um, Margaret, let's before we start with the book, tell us about your background, your professional background. Oh, where did Margot Bloomstein start? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I'm um, I've been working in consulting in in content strategy for about twenty years, and um, and over that time, I've worked in in large agencies. Um, kind of cut my teeth at, at Sapient, and um, it's funny because when I joined the team there about twenty years ago, I joined a content strategy team within um, within the larger consulting agency. Um, and when folks say, well, isn't content strategy new? I always want to push back on that and say, well, you know, because I mean, I was joining a team 20 years ago that had the title content strategy. And I think that's, um, it sort of recognized a few things. One that as we were practicing it within the broader user experience discipline, um, at the time, it was more or less glorified copywriting and technical writing, um, but uh, it's kind of grown over that time. It's solidified just the same as user experience design has has solidified and matured. Because I mean, we weren't using that term to describe the early days of web consulting either. But um, but yeah, over the past twenty years, I think content strategy has emerged from glorified copywriting and technical writing to be more of a a core pillar of how we create online experiences, how we create more immersive user experiences. And, um, and so over the past 20 years, I've worked in big consulting, mid-sized agencies, um, consulted directly with, with a number of clients of my own, went out on my own to form Appropriate Inc. about 10 years ago, and, um, and really focused more of my discipline then around brand-driven content strategy and, and how organizations communicate consistently in a sustainable way that, that makes sense for their, their budgets and their team's skills, um, connect with their audiences in a way that helps them determine what are the right content types, how do, how do they promote communication that is authentic to who they are, meets the needs of their audiences, and, and builds trust along the way. Excellent, excellent. So uh, this was a great book, and I wondered, why did you write this book? And what are you hoping readers will get out of it? Sure. Well, um, I wrote my first book about nine years ago now, Content Strategy at Work. And that focused just on, on how different industries can communicate in more consistent, cohesive, sustainable ways. What I was seeing, though, from my clients over the past several years was that as their thinking and practices had matured around that, um, some things were falling flat. Like most of my clients are, are marketing departments, maybe in higher ed or retail or, or healthcare or startups, and um, they're not in a political space or anything like that. Most of them aren't government agencies. A few, a few are. But um, what I was seeing that 
was kind of challenging my thinking over the past five, six years was that in those political spaces and um, in the media surrounding politics, something was happening where a lot of marketing messages were falling flat, where sales cycles were taking longer and people were, were taking in information and it wasn't necessarily changing their perspectives. It wasn't changing their beliefs. And when information fails to change what people do or how they act or how they vote, it means that that information, that those marketing messages are, are broken. They're falling flat. They're probably a waste of time and budget. And, uh, and even though I was seeing that in a political space where people were taking in information and it didn't necessarily change their viewpoints, I wondered if that was going to affect my clients as well, the kinds of organizations with whom I partner. And uh, as I dug in more, I realized that, yes, it was going to affect them. It was starting to affect them, where we were seeing how sales cycles were taking longer and, and so many messages were falling flat. And that's a problem. I mean, it's certainly a problem for, for the time that we invest in marketing and getting out our ideas and the budget that we invest there. And it's also one of those things that, that kind of undermines the... Um, the enthusiasm and, and loyalty within marketing departments and, and within teams. That's the kind of stuff that makes people wonder, does my work really matter if it's just kind of falling flat? And, and I wanted to address that. So in writing Trustworthy, I looked to see, all right, if we have this problem where information is not motivating action, where most people are meeting new information with, with not even healthy skepticism, but outright cynicism of saying, you can't tell me anything new. I believe what I believe. And if it feels right, it must be right. When people meet new information with that level of cynicism, it's a problem. So I wanted to see where there are places, where there are spaces, where there are companies, where they could meet cynicism and figure out how to unpack it, how to get around it, where it wasn't so much of a problem. So I wrote Trustworthy to, to find those places and see where there were patterns that the rest of us could learn from and replicate. So that, that's kind of my next question here. So how can content be managed more honestly to gain uh, regain the public's trust? Because we're seeing how that's playing out with the COVID vaccines. I mean, now where cities are going back to, we just found out in Philadelphia, we're going to have to start masking again. So right. so how can how can that happen that we can regain the public's trust in honest um information that's sourced from trustworthy sources. So there's a few things that I want to I want to address in what you just said uh, because as, as you mentioned today uh July 23rd, you know, we we've been amid the pandemic for 18 months I think. Um yeah, yeah. we've seen how early on we were kind of challenged to figure out, well, how do we respond to this? What can we do to, do we need to take this seriously? If so, what do we do to, to try to keep ourselves safe before there's a vaccine? And now with the rollout of a vaccine, what can we do to, to try to still keep ourselves safer? And now with a return in some cities, I think out on the West Coast, I know San Francisco, LA, as you mentioned, Philadelphia is having a having to consider, should we return to requiring masks in indoor spaces, even if you've been vaccinated? Um, as we raise that question and people respond and react to that question, it points to some of the problems that we've had in effectively and appropriately communicating 
around the pandemic and public health, public safety and vaccines. One is this idea that, well, if you got a vaccine, you did that so you don't have to wear a mask anymore. That's something that, that was an idea that the CDC was promoting for a while when we can step back and say, wait, that that's kind of inaccurate. You got a vaccine to keep you safer, not so that you wouldn't require a mask anymore, not so that you wouldn't need to wear this on your face anymore, but we realized that vaccines, distanced, distant being outdoors, um, wearing masks, those are things that, you know, some people describe, they almost work like layers of, of Swiss cheese. None of them are completely without their holes, none are completely foolproof, but when done together, we keep ourselves safer and we keep our friends and neighbors safer as well. But there's been some miscommunication around that. So there's been misunderstanding. And I think that we can kind of pull back then to broader thinking and broader communication around public health. As you said, how do we how do we help people trust this kind of communication more so that not so that the communication is is better or more worthy of our applause or, or case studies, but so that we all keep ourselves safer. And I think that question for public health communications officials, um, some of whom I had the opportunity to, to kind of take apart and tease out and, and learn from in writing Trustworthy, um, I think that question for people in public health applies to many, many industries. How do we make sure that our information is more useful and more actionable? And I think it goes back to three main principles that, that I describe in the book around how we offer people a consistent, cohesive, familiar voice, the right volume of detail so that they can make good decisions and feel good about the decisions they make, as well as a degree of vulnerability that helps build rapport. So you write about voice. How do you define voice and how does a company or an individual project their voice in a way that's authentic? So voice refers to the um, the consistent, familiar way in which your brand communicates verbally as well as visually. So what you say and how you say it, um, the, the jargon or terminology that you use, as well as the typeface, the, the overall look and feel, the, the style guidelines that, that your brand probably has um, that maybe are more visual than verbal. That's all, those are all the components that add up to your brand's voice. And as I write, one of the best things that you can do right now to help make your voice more, more trustworthy is ensure that it is consistent, familiar. Now is not the time to do some big brand overhaul. One of the examples that, that I offer is from MailChimp, the, the email marketing organization. Yeah. Um, I'm sure many, many listeners are probably well familiar with, with MailChimp. Um, and, and one of the things that, that makes them so familiar is that they haven't changed that much as long as they've been around, even though they've added new products and services, they used to just be the a small business serving other small businesses. Now they serve more than 60% of the world's email marketing needs. Um, and they do more than just marketing. They Now they are also in e-commerce and in other spaces. But through all of that, they've maintained certain aspects of their brand by design. You still see the same uh, Cavendish yellow through all of their copy, through all of their, all of their um, platforms, all the different touch points with their audiences. Um, they've also maintained a fairly consistent voice. 
They've worked to strategically expand it over time so that if they're speaking in different contexts or different platforms, they tweak it a bit for those different audiences. But they're still kind of Jenny from the block. They're still the MailChimp that you've gotten to, to know and trust because you know them so well. So you can trust, if you're a customer, you can trust your understanding of them as well. So Amazon, obviously, I guess every person uses, I don't use MailChimp, but I'm familiar with them because I use Constant Contact. But giving another example, using Amazon, what's Amazon's voice? What are they trying to project? Um, Amazon, as as their name may imply there, is, is enormous. They project this idea of being comprehensive to have everything you need. And that comes through in in how the brand describes itself. I mean, even on the side of the boxes where you see that smile that goes from literally from A to Z, it's all there. And in so much of their copy, they're communicating also just the volume of stuff they offer. That comes through even in some of the more micro interactions on their site. Like when you're searching for a product on there or just looking into a product category, you see plain and clear the thousands of results that come up. So even the search results can teach you about product categories. That comes through in their visual presentation as well, where you are hit not with simplicity, but rather with abundance. Amazon communicates abundance. Their voice, though, doesn't do all the work of of making them trustworthy or not. Um, There are other parts that, that also need to kind of all be in alignment to make a brand trustworthy. And we've seen how Amazon has lost consumer trust, um, certainly over the past year, where even though so many people do turn to them because they know that they can get so much there, people have started to question just what they trust about Amazon. If they they trust them to be kind of a a good company, a good member of the community, a good employer, we're starting to dig more into the values of organizations. And I think that that's something that we've seen more and more over the past year as well. Um, Please explain how volume works and how to avoid being excessive where prospects cheating you out. You have a good example about Patagonia, which seems to be doing well, even if they are providing a lot of information. I'm assuming the level of volume depends on what you're marketing. So can you talk about that? Sure. Yeah. So if voice describes who you are, what what you offer, kind of giving people cues uh, and and different points that they can kind of cling on to to say, yeah, I know this organization. The volume of what you're saying, the level of detail into which you go, uh, whether that's in the length of a blog post or the, the number of details on a product description page or even the number of images in a gallery, that gives people more information so that they can determine, all right, do I have enough so that I can trust my own knowledge about this company, so that I can trust that I have enough information to make a good decision, Um, whether it's about buying a product, buying into a company, deciding to do business with with another, another small business, maybe in a B2B space. And all of that goes back to how much an organization says. And um, some of like the examples that I share, as you mentioned, Patagonia, they've really explored the potential of long form copy, even in their product descriptions. And we know that, that over kind of the past 10 years or so on the web, 
the pendulum is kind of swung back and forth between brevity and bullets or, or long form copy that sometimes can feel indulgent. The thinking for a while was like, people don't read online. People don't read, period, in any platform. But then what we've learned through user research, user testing, um, and, and seeing very, very real quantitative results from, from a variety of brands is that people do read, people do want to do research and take in more information when it pertains to a bigger deal kind of purchase, a bigger ticket kind of purchase, or, or a decision that will have a bigger impact when maybe they're making decisions around healthcare or, or financial investments um, or kind of just their future in general. People do read, they wanna take in more information. And as long as we're giving them content that is relevant, cohesive, if it's copy, that it's well-written in a way that, that pulls people through that information, then yeah, they want to take in more. One of, one of my favorite examples um, that I share in Trustworthy is from Crutchfield Electronics. And there they encounter a lot of consumers that, that are looking to, to do research, to take in information maybe about buying a new camera lens or um, home audio equipment where maybe they're coming to them because they have questions and they just wanna get this right. What they see in looking at their really, really long pages with a lot of different content types is that people spend a lot of time there reading, getting comfortable with the information, but not just getting comfortable with that information in those purchases, but also getting more confident. And they measure that confidence in a low rate of product returns, in people coming back again and again for other purchases. And we can talk about that as customer loyalty, but the point is that volume of information pays off for them. I agree with you. How do you explain when it is best to explain a brand's challenges and opportunities to your audience? Because you kind of said that's part of the part of being authentic to your uh, customer and your prospects. So can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, I'm sorry, about the... Uh, you, yeah. How do you explain when it's best to explain a brand's challenges and opportunities mm. to the audience? Yeah, yeah. I think um, oh, before you do that, there was a company you mentioned. Someone here asked name of the company you just mentioned. So what was the Crutchfield? Yeah, yeah. Crutchfield Electronics, um, and uh, and I guess if I could just share a little bit about them before going on what you were just talking about. When I was interviewing people there, I, I spoke with their brand manager, um, uh, head of customer relations, as well as someone that was a copywriter there. And he started out, his name was Steve. He started out there 27 years ago, writing copy for their catalog. They started out as a catalog company. I just saw a question pop up in the chat around um, like offline sales letters and direct mail and whatnot. And I think that's a really good question because so often when I talk about content strategy and copywriting, it's about content strategy for the web. And I will say all of this applies offline as well. And it should, because when we're engaging with customers across different platforms, they're not thinking like, well, these are my online interactions with them. Now I'm in live chat mode and now, oh, look, a catalog came in the mail, which will be completely different. No, they, they experience interacting with a brand hopefully in a cohesive and consistent way. So we need to think about this, all of uh, how it affects all of the different platforms and our interactions across them. And uh, so Steve started out writing copy for their catalog. 
he translated a lot of what he learned there to then writing copy for product descriptions online as well. Not so that the brand would be monolithic and repetitive, but so that it would be consistent and cohesive. And I think that that's something that applies to, to brands of all sizes and all budgets to the, the platforms on which we operate, whether we're just engaging on maybe Twitter and through live chat and, and a very streamlined website or something that, that is more robust across different platforms. Getting that right can be challenging though. And Mark, to your question around how a brand addresses the challenges of getting things right, that speaks right to vulnerability, which is a is a term that we talk about more and more in business today. I think Brene Brown has certainly popularized it in how we talk about vulnerability in interpersonal reactions um, and interactions, I should say, but it applies to how brands engage with audiences as well. Because whether your business is large or small, we don't always get everything right. Some of our evolution has to take place in public, especially if your brand has screwed up in some way, um, is navigating maybe some boneheaded mistakes, or if you're simply just trying to engage on big social issues on which none of us ever get it all right, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. Again, I think that's one of those things that we've, we've recognized over the past year that businesses have an opportunity and maybe an obligation to engage around social issues. Because the thinking used to be that um, business should stay out of politics. But more and more, we realize that that itself is a political stance. And if we want to be closer to the communities that we serve, sometimes we need to address the issues that affect those communities. And sometimes those issues are internal to our companies as well, whether they're issues around equity, diversity, um, the challenges around Me Too or Black Lives Matter. When we're looking at how we can best serve our communities, sometimes we have to pause and say, the problems out there are problems here too. We want to acknowledge those problems publicly. And um, like some of the examples that, that I share and trustworthy from TED, from uh, NPR, from Old Navy, they are big brands that have had to have public reckonings around things where they're still trying to improve and evolve. The, the example that I share from TED um, is a, uh, it's kind of a lofty example, but the problems that they tried to address are probably quite familiar. They had things that were wrong on their website and some of their, their biggest critics called them out for being wrong. Some of the science was incorrect in some of the talks that they were publicizing, either because it hadn't been very well peer reviewed, but it sounded really good, but it wasn't accurate. Or in some cases, the, the topics in those presentations had evolved and the science was accurate when they published those talks, but a few years later, it had been called into question. And they wondered, how do we how do we effectively say, we were wrong? Do they just take that content off the site and maybe break those inbound links? Um, maybe do bad things around SEO as a result? Do they try to just ignore the issues and hope the critics go away? And they realized neither of those solutions was right. So they convened their critics. They said, all right, how, how should we put this in a better context? What would you expect of us? They convened a series of conversations around that and effectively prototyped in public to say, let's put up some information on our site to say, we're recognizing these problems and working to, to address those problems, bear with us. 
And then they frequently updated the content around that to let their audience know, here's how we're putting incorrect science in a, in a better context. They ultimately settled on keeping those talks live on the site. Um, you can still find some of them up there that now include additional copy and notes around how to frame them more accurately or how to see updated versions of them. And that kind of work of saying, eek, we were caught maybe being, being incorrect, maybe putting our brand behind something that wasn't worthy of our name, that plagues a lot of organizations. And, and they modeled a good way to still build trust by being vulnerable, demonstrating leadership, and bringing their audience closer in helping them participate in a solution. So a uh, question from the audience, just wondering about smaller owner managed companies or startups whereby the owner is the brand. Any advice? Is there a magic formula for how much of your personality you show and how much you should uh, keep private? 76%. Yeah, there is no there is no magic formula. <laughs> There's no perfect number that's like, this much is how much should be out there. But I think that you can look and see, well, what what is scalable? What is appropriate? What does your audience want? And also, what do what do you want? And I think many people that have evolved, whether it's as, as owner-operated businesses and brands or, or maybe more public figures, uh, personal brands through social media have had to wrestle with this. How much do you keep private as yours? And how much do you want to share with your audience? And I think if you can strategically think of the value in sharing with your audience, that can clue you into the answers that are right for you. One of so, the uh, okay, oh, sure, go uh, ahead. I was just going to say um, I've had the opportunity to speak a bit with with the owner of Manaqua Brewing Company up in um, Manaqua, Wisconsin. So if you're not familiar with their story, they're a small brew pub that over the past year or so through the course of the pandemic has had to evolve. They, they couldn't pay their workers because they're in a, in a touristy area that didn't have tourists for a while. They had to kind of rethink what they were going to do with the product, the, the beer that they still had on hand. And they ended up deciding to, to kind of throw in around personal politics. The, the owner and CEO there, he said that, you know what, we're, we're suffering because of some political issues in our country because of poor communication around vaccination and whatnot. And um, basically he decided to lead with his politics. That's a dangerous thing. It's a risky thing. It's a vulnerable thing. What happened was that by doing that, it, um, it caused him to lose some customers. It also caused many, many, many more customers to seek him out, to find him and say, well, we want to buy product because it feels like your values are our values. We're going to start buying beer from this company. And the brew pub ended up having to shift their operations. They're now um, now a beer, uh, they're now a, oh, what's the appropriate word for it? They've, they've gone from basically being a single location brew pub to now a microbrewery that distributes across the state um, is gaining customers from, from hours and hours away that are seeking them out. And they've grown tremendously. They also, um, they also launched a super PAC with, with some of their funds to allow other people to support them, even that didn't want to buy the product from them. Apparently, it's a lot of IPA. If you're not into IPA, maybe you're not into them. But mm -hmm. uh, it's a good example, I think, of a company where the CEO has said, this is, this is who I am, so this is who we are. 
yes, there are some people that probably wouldn't want to work for him or probably wouldn't want to buy beer from him because of that. But as he said to me, so many of our social issues are sort of divided 50-50 in our country. So if that's the case, by saying who you are, what you value and how you are, maybe you stand the chance of gaining an even greater audience from the 50% that does support you and those same ideas. So you asked the question about knowing the limits of when there's too much content. How do you know that? So I think it is, it is always just about more content is better content. And no, because I think we, we run into those constraints that are common across businesses of every size, that if you can't produce content and maintain it, maybe you shouldn't have produced it in the first place. All businesses are constrained by time and budget and, and the talents on their, on their teams. Or if you're the, the kind of team of one and wearing all the hats, you have to embrace the opportunity costs that come with, with creating content too. And I think we've all seen, maybe we've all written those blogs that you know launch with a bunch of posts in the first six months. And then after six months, you see sort of the digital tumbleweeds blowing through them when people realized this is too much. I can't maintain it. And I think that you can, you can test that with your audience by looking at your site traffic, seeing what, what is useful. Are people reading pages? And then do the site analytics show that then they're acting on those pages, whether it's to buy a product or go to your contact page or take some sort of action on it? Or are they kind of reading those pages and leaving your site? Or are they not finding those pages at all? In which case, maybe it's self-indulgent to have them. Maybe you don't need to have that content. Um, one of the other examples that I share in the book is, is from um, the British government. They previously had something like 75,000 pages of content across nine different websites pertaining to interacting with government services. They didn't need that. British citizens didn't need that. And they went through a big content audit to determine, well, what did they need? What content actually supported decisions and what content was simply turning people away? And in going through that process, they were able to winnow their content down to just 3,000 pages, which is still a daunting figure for many of us. But I think to go from that, that kind of ratio of 75,000 down to 3,000 points to the fact that so much of what we say, we might like, but it isn't necessary to our audiences at all. Uh, do you, should you, when talking about this further, should you hire content experts or conduct research and surveys to find this? I mean, what's the best way of kind of, you know, you've given some examples, but is it worthwhile to bring a content expert, somebody, because you're in the middle of the forest and they're outside of it? I mean, one thing that I always say with my clients is that I think good content comes from sharing our expertise. As, as a content strategist, um, as somebody that focuses on brand and content strategy, as a consultant, I know best about how to help organizations communicate effectively and sustainably and distinctly in, in a way that is appropriate for them um, with their audiences. But they know their expertise best. They know best what makes their product or brand unique. They know best, um, in many cases, what their audiences are looking for, what their audiences are motivated to buy and what they, they need. So I think that whenever you're working with an outside content specialist, 
yes, look to them for their expertise around how to communicate effectively online or through whichever platform you're choosing, maybe even how best to determine the right content types. Um, Ask them how to prioritize your communication goals. Let them help you um, move through an exercise. Maybe let them facilitate an exercise to determine your message architecture. Um, But then work with them. I think the best content comes from that kind of partnership. And I mean, I can tell you with my own consulting, yes, years ago, maybe I would have conducted a content audit of my client's content or uh, developed editorial style guidelines for them. I don't do that anymore. Now what I'll do is put together the framework for say a content audit. I'll work with them to conduct it. I'll show them how to do it. I'll give them feedback, but I want them to do some of that work so that I'm not just gaining institutional knowledge and then eventually leaving with it. I want them to develop that knowledge. Same label when we're working to develop editorial style guidelines. First, yes, I'll, I'll work with them to develop a message architecture or hierarchy of communication goals. But then I'll work with them and share what I've learned as as best practices around sentence case versus title case and and what sort of elements should you be including in product description copy. Um, But I'll work with them to share institutional knowledge, um, kind of industry best practices. But I don't want them taking on anything that isn't going to work best for them. And oftentimes they know that best. They know their constraints best. What? When is the best use of image and what is the best way to use it? Because everybody always talks about, you know, video and imagery uh, is what's most powerful. But when is the best to use imagery? With with any content type, whether it is uh, photography or information conveyed through diagrams or videography, um, or for that matter, pulling in um, like visual tweets or or other social media or live chat. The answer with any new content type is don't do it if you can't do it well, because inconsistent imagery or imagery that doesn't convey the right information or imagery that isn't accessible. If if you're including images, but not including alt text for people that maybe are using a screen reader or aren't on a high bandwidth connection, if you're not able to do it well, don't do it at all. Question from the audience. What is your opinion on Gary B's volume-driven content model strategy? Create 64 pieces a day. Wow. I think exactly what I just said. If you can't do it well, don't do it at all. Um, I know that 64 pieces a day, that's a lot of work. Yeah, it's a lot of work. How would you even have 64 pieces? You know, I get it for Facebook, but I don't get it for most of us. It would probably require a big team or if not a big team, a lot of reuse and repurposing and slicing and dicing your existing content. So then you have to ask, is content that will be created by multiple people or curated from multiple sources, is it going to be consistent? If it's going to be consistent, it means you've already developed style guidelines, trained people on using those style guidelines to ensure that it can be consistent and cohesive. Um, and I think all of that goes back to, do you have the, the right structure in place to support creating that level of volume? But even before you ask, well, can you do it well? It's important to ask, Is it right to do it? Is it what your audience wants? Is it what your audience needs? 
At some point with content creation and curation, which is an act of creation itself because we're, we're kind of putting editorial oversight on it, we have to, we have to ask, are we being good, good conversationalists, which is a, a key part of content creation and maintenance? Are we going into are we going into those spaces with our customers, our employees, our potential target audiences? And are we just saying a lot? Or are we also engaging with them around what they want too? I'm a big fan of the the perspective that um, the brilliant advertising executive and professor Edward Bochus talks about uh, that to be a good conversationalist, follow the rule of thirds. Maybe a third of the time, you're you're creating new content that is appropriate to your brand, that is distinct, that that offers a, a unique viewpoint that reflects your values and communication goals that people wouldn't find anywhere else. A third of the time, though, beyond that, interact with what people are saying about it, interact with their interests, comment on their interests, elevate their interests. And then a third of the time, just share what other people are doing too, because so much of our perspective comes not just from what we create, but our attention, where our, our areas of focus are, what we can surface from, from elsewhere. And, and I think people forget that when they're just on the mad dash to create content. But again, I think it also goes back to, if you can't do it well, don't do it. Don't do so much. Don't expect to create those 64 pieces of content because that's how we get a lot of platform proliferation problems. And that's just also how we get a lot of garbage. No one wants that from you. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Another question from the audience. Does the marketing tone need to be consistent like progressive insurance and AFLAC or variable? Consistent. Consistency next to cleanliness, next to godliness. (laughs) (laughs) So yes, I I get this question a lot from clients, especially when we're talking across different platforms. And it used to be people would say, well, Twitter, only 140 characters. Does it have to be all consistent there? Now, even though it's only 280 characters, um, still, I think that if that is where people are interacting with you first, or maybe only, that's your opportunity to introduce them to your brand. Why would you be different there than you are anywhere else? And it doesn't mean that language needs to be just as formal. And I think this is where we vary a bit between voice that is maybe more overriding and tone that varies by specific context, um, sometimes by specific topic. Um, the, and it's actually going back to, to MailChimp, their example, as they've developed their editorial style guidelines to help um, both the freelancers with whom they work and internal writers, something that they've they've really focused on is how they can support the brand as it grows over time and support their, their different audiences as they grow over time. So when they're writing a message to maybe very experienced marketers or somebody that's come over from, from a competitor that they already know what they're doing, they're able to use a different level of jargon and speak with maybe more technical expertise than they would if they're engaging somebody that is new to all of this. With the goal in mind that whoever is reading, in that case, a particular email, gets an understanding of of who MailChimp is and feels comfortable and confident in their interaction with them. Because ultimately that's what builds trust when people feel like, I know who you are. I, I know that in engaging with you and buying your product or continuing to use your services, I'm making a good choice. 
I feel comfortable with the decisions I'm making. I can understand maybe how your company is evolving. When people have that level of comfort, they have that level of confidence. And we do that by, by engaging them in a way that is always true and authentic to who we are through a consistent voice. How, do you, how are you doing that with your book? Like, how are you marketing your book? And, and what's the messaging behind your book? And what are you doing? Because when I think about it, you know, it's like another startup. And we have a lot of people doing startups on listening to the show. So what do you do to market this book and, and what voice you're using and so forth? So use your book as an example. Sure. Um, so my book came out in March. And in the lead up to that, I was working with, well, with my publisher and the marketing team at my publisher, also with um with a, a book publicity agency and um, and then also with my editor slash mentor slash agent. She's amazing. Um, and working with those different people, they were all saying, all right, well, you need to be here. You need to be here. You need to be here. As a content strategist, so know thyself, be true to, to yourself as a business owner, whether your business is a, whatever your business is. I knew that I could not be everywhere and do that well. So I had to be strategic about the platforms where I would be creating content so that I could do so sustainably. And people always say like, social media is free. And we know, no, social media isn't free. It's just a different kind of expensive. It still takes your time and attention. And I knew that if I was creating content for for Facebook, I could probably repurpose some of that for LinkedIn, translate it slightly for the tone. Um, but the voice would always be true to me. And I'm very active on Twitter at M. Bloomstein. And I knew that, okay, that's probably where I would be sharing a lot of content first, but I'm not very active on Instagram. Bookstagram, uh, book people are very, very active on, on Instagram. That would have been great, but it wasn't right for me. Other people have shared my content there, and that's good. Occasionally, I'll comment on it, but I knew where I could be best and be there sustainably, engaging in the comments appropriately and all. And I would say that across all of that, yeah, my voice is is pretty consistent. Um, I'm all about embracing the bad puns uh, on pretty much every platform. On, on LinkedIn, I talk more about kind of business-related issues, whereas I know on Facebook, that's where I've got more friends and family following me, many of whom are in this industry, but I can talk in a more colloquial way with them. Um, I, I, I don't really speak lol speak or use a lot of typos or anything like that, even on Twitter, because that's... That's not who I am. You can probably tell I'm getting a little twitchy even thinking about that. So that's how I maintain consistency in a sustainable and authentic way. How long do you spend on social media every day? You know, like promoting, marketing. How, how much do you spend even just for trustworthy or how much time should somebody spend during the course of the day uh, promoting their business and, and so forth on social media? So I like to think of, of my best days as, as kind of divided into, into parts, and I kind of move between those parts throughout the day. But some of that time is in doing the work. Right now, some of that, um, that work is working with the, the consulting clients that, that I've developed since the book came out and, and also prior to um, bringing some of my thinking and research to them for our ongoing engagements. Um, and uh, and then 
as different organizations have brought me in to speak about the themes in the book or teach workshops or, or deliver um, uh, kind of fireside chats around it, bringing those themes to life for their customers. I think of that as the work that I am doing. Then there's the time I spend promoting my work. Some of that is promoting the book. A lot of that is through social media. Some of that though is taking things that I learn from my clients, teasing out, maybe anonymizing some of it and sharing that across social media. That's probably um, maybe an hour or two every day. So there's doing the work, there's promoting the work, but then also I think that because of the nature of, of our industry um, and because I want to have good people to, to work with, I've always spent a lot of time around teaching about the work as, as well. And I teach a, a graduate level course in a master's degree program, um, but then I've always kind of focused on, well, where can I do guest lectures and where can I, um, I support other friends that are teaching in classrooms at the undergrad and graduate level. Um, and then finally, beyond the, the doing, the promoting, the teaching, there's also the learning so that I can make sure that, that my perspectives are fresh so that I can bring it back to all of those other sectors. And I'd say on good days, um, I like to think that my time is sort of evenly broken among those areas, maybe maybe a couple hours in each. Um, but, you know, like so many of us, like so many small business owners, we spend way more time than that. And so I think you also have to look at what gives you energy. And some days I'm using social media way more because a topic has exploded where I feel like I can bring a lot of perspective to it. And that will shine back favorably on my work as well. Um, and, and if those are the things that give me energy, I know it'll pay off elsewhere over the course of the week. I always wondered why direct marketing letters can run two, three pages. I'm still getting these things in the mail when people are so busy and don't have the time or will take the time to read them. So, and there's super smart people who must have thought about this. And it's been going on for, gosh, I'm 60. It's been going on my whole life. So why do they do those two or three pages and how and why do they think that would be effective, especially today when people have such short tensions, attention spans? So I think there's probably three potential answers there. And I'm not so arrogant as to say that yeah, I know that this is going to be the, the right one, but because um, I do think that that varies probably by organization and by industry. But I would say the three answers it comes down to, one is self-indulgent content creation. Um, everybody's favorite topic is themselves or their business or, or their client's business, and we love to share that. I think we all, we all hope at the end of the day or in the middle of a conversation or piece of direct mail that somebody listening is going to also love that topic, but that, that, how, that happens far less frequently than we think. So I think some of that is just self-indulgent. In other cases, it's because we can look to user research that says how those letters test. And in different industries, um, we do look to see that, that there are higher open rates, um, literally on, on certain pieces of mail, and, uh, and people are able to point to that data. Um, but I think sometimes that data we tend to extrapolate and overuse, and sometimes it, it isn't quite as timely as we would like. But I think the, the third reason why we still see a lot of content there is because we still see a lot of content there. And the, to, to explain that further, when, 
when all of the companies in an industry are kind of taking the same approach, for one company to to break from that, to maybe reduce all of their their useful information to a single page or to a postcard or or to say we're getting out of direct mail entirely it might make them seem like like an iconoclast and and kind of a total game changer and in some cases that's great and that's how how we see the those game changers develop across different industries whether it's a warby parker or or casper mattresses or or simple banking and that can be great. In other cases, though, when when a company looks like it isn't following the rules of that industry, it might seem it might seem to its audience that they just don't know what they're doing, or that their their budget is running really really lean. And so I think that it is some of that kind of keeping up with the Joneses to appear like like all is fine. You're playing the rules of the game still, and that is unfortunately a, kind of a, a self perpetuating problem. Oh, a question from the audience. And you kind of talked about this with beer company in, in Wisconsin. When would a firm want to share their political beliefs in social media? So I think some of that goes back to consistency. Don't just do it on social media, but look at how if your organization is um, is going to make its values visible, do that consistently and with your, your whole heart. Um, one of my favorite examples is Penzi's Spices. So they're a, a spice retailer that is based in the Midwest, although now they've got outlets all across the country. And um, several years ago, in the wake of the 2016 election, their CEO took to his personal Facebook page, uh, Bill Penzi, CEO of Penzi's Spices, to say, hey, this new guy that we've elected, his perspectives on immigration those are not our perspectives. We we think immigrants are a good thing for our country. And, um, you know, before anybody says, hey, stay in your lane there, cinnamon boy, realize that <laughs> as a spice retailer, I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. Um, I wish he would use that. I like it. Um, realize this is our lane because spices come oftentimes from war-torn regions that are affected by U.S. policy. And so many of our family favorites here in kind of like the great American cookbook came here on the backs of immigrants. So immigration is our lane. And they lost a number of customers. They got a lot of headlines and they were not all good. But then they also started gaining more customers. They expanded their target audience because suddenly people were finding them that maybe they weren't really into home cooking, but they said, you know what, your values are my values and I have friends and family that love to cook. So I'm going to be buying their Christmas presents from Penzies this year. Their packaging is pretty nice and all. And their sales actually spiked. They went up 50% year over year and they saw how their sales were spiking every time they took to Facebook and shared some political perspective. So they started bringing that into their sale campaigns, um, when they were launching new products, um, some of the naming of products, every time there was some sort of discriminatory or racist headline coming out of government action, um, they ran sort of a, a counter campaign to say, here's how we're responding. And um, they've grown tremendously because of that. Their audience has grown, their sales have grown. They've done really, really well um, because they have led with their values. And like the CEO of Minocqua said, in so many of our issues, people are divided 50-50. So 
why not put a stake in the ground and tell your audience who you are and how you are so that maybe you will find a more vocal and enthusiastic audience? Nike did the same thing with Colin Kaepernick and the whole Black Lives Matter. Next question from the audience. What do you think of writing LinkedIn articles? Are they beneficial? Are they better off just writing a longer post? And even is LinkedIn effective? Because I've used LinkedIn groups to promote this show. And I have, I'm in LinkedIn groups that uh, have 3.2 million users. And I thought for sure I had John Chambers on the uh, who built Cisco Systems. I thought, oh my God, I won't have a big enough number of, uh, I won't be able to handle all the people. You know, just think a fraction of 3.2 million. But I found that that really doesn't move the dial. My own personal LinkedIn moves the dial because uh, I have 12,000 people. But if I uh, plug a show on all of these others and I did it for six months, I find it doesn't move the dial at all. So back to her question, what do you think of writing LinkedIn articles? Are they beneficial? Are they better off just writing a longer post? And of course, you can talk about what I mentioned as well. So I think it entirely, I don't want to say it depends on luck and the time at which you post, but sometimes it certainly seems like it. Um, What I've seen is that on LinkedIn, as well as on Facebook and Twitter, um, virality matters. So the people that comment on things early drive more visibility and more comments. Um, The more things spread, the more they will continue to spread and the algorithm will promote them. And I think in my own experience, it doesn't seem to matter the particular content type post versus article. Um, But I will also say, I think it depends a lot on your particular industry and subject matter and audience and where your audience is and, um, and their tendency to comment on things and share things. So you write about using plain language and the concept of nominalization. What what is that? So nominalization is making things into nouns, Um, taking a verb and um, making it into a gerund by putting an ing at the end versus unpacking it more. And um, the example that that I share, I share a few different examples. And one of them is from uh, how the, the British National Health Service talks about um, dealing with different diseases, identifying symptoms, and how they've had to actively work to to unpack their nominalizations. Because people know how to react to verbs. When, When we see a sentence or a call to action that starts with a verb, people respond to it. They take action on it. Whereas nouns, when we nominalize verbs into nouns, they tend to be longer. So if you've got something that says, schedule your appointment now, people will respond to that. If you've got a heading that is um, current appointment scheduling, that takes longer for our brains to process as a label, and it doesn't easily translate to a call to action. And then um, they do that even in talking about how to describe diseases, how to describe symptoms, um, when they're telling people how to act on certain symptoms, if they need to schedule an appointment right away or watch for these other signs if you're determining if you should schedule an appointment. And their process, their kind of guiding principle around content and copywriting for, for medical terminology has always been to, to focus on how can we unpack this into layman's terms? How can we unpack this so that more people can act on it? 
And that's gotten some pushback from many people in the medical community that feel like sometimes they're they're simplifying things. But the guiding principle in NHS online communication has been how do we make this accessible and actionable for the greatest number of people? So that means thinking as our users would think, speaking as our users and our audiences would speak, which means unpacking a lot of those long words that that oftentimes um, contain the medical establishment's lingo. I'm wondering this, uh, and and this is my own interest, is what is your take on how best to use a podcast to raise visibility and drive customers? Not to be not to be too meta about this, but uh, <laughs> so how to use this podcast to to uh, yeah. to get more of that kind of action? I think yeah. um, I think with any content type, whether we're talking about a podcast, uh, whether we're talking about um, user interviews or or video interviews or pulling together user anecdotes, anything that allows the the voice of your audience. To, to kind of come to life, to have their terminology, their thinking, their priorities be reflected back in some way is, is incredibly valuable. Because the same way I was saying that um, for so many people, for so many brands, our favorite topics are ourselves. I think the more we see ourselves represented back visually and verbally, the more we feel comfortable taking in information. When um, when you bring on people that look more like your audience, I think that that allows your audience to expand. I know as an, as an author, when, when I'm talking with different podcast hosts, and certainly like when, when we first started speaking, one of the things I'd like to do is look to see, well, who else has been on this podcast? Is it all men? Is it all only white people? Um, are there any other people that, that look like me, sound like me, maybe reflect my interests and values? And I look for that because that's what makes me feel maybe a little bit more comfortable, but also it allows, it, it's kind of a, a sort of um, a shibboleth or, or kind of a, a common language to me that says, all right, there's going to be a broad audience whose interests are reflected here as well. And I think that's wonderful. That's what we aim for in being inclusive and in reaching broader audiences. And I think for, for podcasts, when you can represent more of the, the interests and language and perspectives and life experiences of your audience or the people that you would like to be in your audience, that's what makes them more comfortable with you. That also is what kind of attunes them more to you. And that's that level of comfort and confidence and attention, those are those building blocks for trust. We've worked very hard at that for the past uh, year and a half to do that for this particular show. Now we have listeners from 51 countries uh, that listen and we try to make sure that we have that wide range. Here's the last question. Uh, How do you get followers and prospects to feel like stakeholders, which sports teams, food and beverage companies- Yeah, how do we go from- us and them to just we, I think that's where that's where vulnerability comes yeah. into play. So as I was talking about those, those kind of three pillars in that framework for building trust, voice, volume, and vulnerability. If, if voice tells people who you are and how you are so that they can say like, oh, I see myself represented here. I feel comfortable with it. And volume tells people, it gives them enough information so that they can make good decisions then about you and feel good about the decisions they make. 
vulnerability, being able to, to prototype in public, to bring more people into the conversation, ask them for their perspectives and respond to their perspectives. That's how, that's how we expose more of our humanity. Like we always say that people don't buy from brands, people buy from people. And I think that in order to do that, we need to demonstrate who we are as people, what, what we value, our flaws and foibles, what, what is challenging to us. And I think building that kind of humanity, that allows people to connect with organizations. Like the example that I shared from Ted, they were able to break through that we versus them of the brand and the stewards of the brand, people working in content, marketing there versus their critics. They were able to kind of break that down. So it became, we are working on a better solution for presenting our content. Um, we are all able to now champion this moving forward. And in kind of prototyping in public, bringing their critics together to, to ring in on a solution, that allowed those people to become champions of it, to say, look at how the company has improved. Look at how the TED platform has improved. I was part of this solution. I think doing that, bringing people closer to those problems allows them to champion it, not as consumers of the content, not as customers, but as a part of the solution. That's how we expand our audiences and create greater connection with them. Margaret? So enjoyed having you on. You were definitely trustworthy. Uh, and uh, we appreciated the great examples, insight, and advice about how to be more successful and how we utilize content and for positive means, not dividing us. So I thank you so much. And I hope when you have the next book that you'll be back on again. Have a great rest of your thank weekend. You. Everybody, please have a safe weekend. Look forward to seeing you all next Friday. Take care, everyone. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.